0: inescapably 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 foreign welcome to without borders if you've tuned into the show before you know that i'm nolan yuma and that this is the show for nomads expats immigrants third culture kids or anyone else that feels inescapably foreign today i'm here with katie prescott the director of average academy And she's pulled off the digital nomad lifestyle, teaching English to students from over 50 countries. Uh, She studied Chinese at university and currently works in Japan. So I'm here to pick her brain about language learning, how education and education tactics vary from culture to culture, and her personal story, which, like mine, she describes as a bit weird. (laughs) Uh, But first off, Katie, how are you doing today?
1: I'm great, thank you.
0: Alright, i well, happy to have you on the show here. Um so one of the one things I want to get into first is your Chinese proficiency. Uh you reached the the S- HSK 5 level, correct?
1: Yes, yeah. Which is means, about you
0: know, 1500 characters in in Chinese. And over 2000.
1: Yeah, probably a fair bit more to be. Yeah. I feel like I did the HSK 5 exam um which I want to say it was, what, yeah, one and a half thousand characters, maybe? Um, But I studied, so I studied Chinese as, I did like an exchange program in China when I was a university student. Um, And then lots of online classes. I took an online Chinese semester as well. I was meant to be, I was meant to be going to China, actually, to do a master's in teaching Chinese. I had an offer for that uh, at one point. But then COVID, all kinds of stuff was going on at the time and it didn't work out. Um, But yeah, I, I studied itself like in China for a year. And at the end of that, the end of that, I got to HSK 4 level. Then after the online classes to HSK 5. But I would say that HSK isn't like a proficiency exam. So I think the exam itself probably tests on 1,500 characters. Probably no somewhere close to double that. But (laughs) that might just be me and my love for character learning.
0: Okay. Oh, really interesting. Uh, So the master's program fell through. Do you think it's something that you'd want to go back into? Or are you most passionate about teaching English?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I... I love teaching Uh, i love teaching english Um, i also trained originally as a science teacher actually back in the uk um so education is something i'm really passionate about i was that opportunity to to learn like train to become a chinese teacher was super super exciting chinese learning language learning in general is something i'm so passionate about um so in a way i'm like i wish i could do it Uh, at the same time it would be a minimum additional two years worth of studying and as someone who's starting to rapidly approach 30, um, I think another two years of university might have been a bit much. Um, so in some ways I regret missing out on the opportunity, but at the same time, I probably won't go back to do it now.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, man plans the universe laughs. I guess, so who knows. Um, and what motivated you to study Chinese?
1: Oh gosh, that is a big question. <laughs> so actually, um, I have some family ties uh, to China in that my dad's originally from Hong Kong. Um, although that's how the family, like within Hong Kong, they, they speak Cantonese rather than Mandarin. So it's a completely different language, really. Although if you ask the Chinese government, there's apparently the same language. They're just a dialect. But anyway, um, basically a completely different language. But I already had, I guess, a kind of awareness of some aspects of Chinese culture um, and an interest in that part of the world, just from family ties and visits like when I was a child. And the opportunity just sort of came up like I was studying at university and I saw an advert to go to China for a year to study Chinese on a full scholarship. And I'm like free holiday for a year. That sounds great. Um, (laughs) Sign me up. So I just applied on a whim to this opportunity to, to study Chinese in China for a year. And i got it which was amazing and then i told my mom and my mom was a little bit like wow katie you're going to china for a year like that's a bit extreme um but i did it and it was an incredible opportunity so yeah i kind of fell into it from that perspective i also learned some chinese when i was in school uh, that was just um like three years or so of classes when i was at school again it was to be honest i think my parents wanted me to have something to do after school to keep me occupied a bit i'm um, to so <laughs> sign me up for classes Um, But yeah, I think it was that year in China that made me fall in love with Chinese culture. I made some many great friends. The food is amazing. Travel opportunities are amazing. And that just hooked me in.
0: So you mentioned that the the difference between Cantonese and Mandarin. So are you fluent now in Mandarin or in Cantonese? Or do you speak a bit of both?
1: Yeah, so I learned Mandarin. Um, I went to Northeastern China. I studied at university in Harbin, so Northeastern China, where everyone speaks mandarin um whereas hong kong it's cantonese um my cantonese i don't speak cantonese i don't know about three words that's about it <laughs> i'm completely horrendous embarrassingly terrible um so yeah don't go there um but yeah i learned mandarin
0: when you live there um and you mentioned that your family is from hong kong or you have some family ties in hong kong um did you have to be careful about the ways that you approach some conversations like for instance i don't know if you could say oh it's actually a completely different language right as you mentioned the government says no it's a different dialect um could you kind of have to be aware of those sensitivities
1: it's interesting i feel like in hong kong people are very aware of these things so like if you say speak to anyone in hong kong or like family who like from hong kong they'll be like, oh yeah you know it's china be china whatever like we understand the government's a bit weird um, whereas you talk to people within China, and I would say things like my dad's from Hong Kong, I wouldn't say my dad's from China because my dad doesn't say he's from China, right? He never had a Chinese passport; he had a Hong Kong passport. Um, so, to so us, he's from Hong Kong, not China. So, if I say that someone within mainland China, they'd be like, "Oh, so you're you're like half Chinese?" I'm like, "I'm not half Chinese. My dad's from Hong Kong. Hong Kong's not China, but I can't say that because that's that's where we start hitting that kind of awkward. I guess it's a, a cultural, political kind of barrier. I guess." um yeah
0: now what about for your for your own identity because you grew up in a small rural town in the uk uh which town was it by the way
1: um you'd never have heard of it um it's vaguely near southampton it's the best description
0: okay Okay. um and i assume since your family was from hong or you have family ties in hong kong it was kind of a part of the reason that you want to study Chinese, except now you studied the Chinese that your family relatives don't speak. Um, but how has that influenced your identity? Like when you started learning Chinese, did, did it answer any unresolved questions or anything like
1: that? I think almost of anything, it opened up more questions, which is not really what I was hoping for. Like, I think growing up, I was very much just like, oh, I'm British. I'm from this town in the UK. Like that's always been who I am. And we have family aboard, But in my head, it's almost like I'm British. And then we have some family members who just happen to be aboard. I'm not sure that even makes sense. Um, but I think the experience of actually living in China um, and also getting to know my relatives more when they got older, it was almost like I started to see the other perspective. like From their perspective, our family's from Hong Kong. And then my dad moved to the UK. And we're the odd who moved to a different country. Um, and it's sort of interesting to start to realize that actually, as... Like a family and as people just generally worldwide we are all connected um and we all connect across cultures and it's i think for anyone most people have some kind of international connection somewhere within their family within their personal relationships and sometimes we don't recognize that growing up but yeah i think i become more aware of that after going to china um and having that experience
0: okay and um, now, just for your own, uh, your own identity again, When I find when we learn new languages, it's not that it changes your identity. Now, some people will argue that. I've brought this up on the show before where people say to learn a language, you kind of have to explore a new identity because it has so much to do with culture. And of course, culture influences your identity. So it's kind of your chance to explore a new part of yourself. And for me, with Spanish, um, I agree with that. I would call myself a it's, um In English, I don't cite things all the time or use a bunch of idioms. But in Engl- in Spanish, I'm really trying to because I just love that part of the culture. And then I would say with Flemish, it's, uh, well, it's what I spoke as a child. So I, I kind of feel childish with it. Um, but more so than just a different identity, I find that when you learn a new language, it helps you describe certain emotions or describe certain feelings or experiences in a way that you can't in another language, right? Because sometimes one word takes an entire sentence to describe. And then even then, there's like a different cultural nuance to it that that full sentence, a full paragraph still doesn't do it justice. Um, So I was wondering, what are some Chinese words that that relate to this? Like, are there any Chinese phrases or words where you're like, you know what, I never thought about this until I knew this word.
1: I feel like there's definitely words in Chinese that we don't really have a direct translation for in English. Um, and I guess that also ties into how we view things, um, which is quite interesting. I think China in some ways is a bit more of a collectivist kind of culture, whereas the UK certainly isn't. Um, so there's like a, there's a word in Chinese, mafan, and they actually have the same word in Japanese, um, uh, which is now slipped my mind this is great my japanese is horrendous now i'm living in japan i've forgotten all of it um but they have the same word in japanese as well but it basically means trouble or like bothersome like you could say oh this thing's a bit frustrating or like so i am causing you some frustration it's more like i'm causing you some frustration you use this word math fan like bother and like it doesn't really translate well because we don't have that same feeling sometimes in english (laughs) we don't Feel that we're bothering other people in the same way, unless we are literally bothering them. But it's almost like, Can I trouble you to help me with this tiny minor thing? Or I'm sorry that I'm causing you this tiny little bother. Whereas we might just say, Excuse me. Oops. Yeah. Something to that effect. um I don't know how I explain that in English. <laughs> it's just a phrase we don't have and a feeling we almost don't have.
0: In English. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Kitty, you can drop the microphone a bit because I'm getting a little bit oh, of yeah. feedback. Yeah,
1: of sorry. <laughs> If I if I leave it too low, it bounces on my chest and then like causes issues.
0: Okay, well, that's the thing with these online recordings, right? We, uh, just so the listeners know this is all done online, so sometimes yeah. have these uh, little small issues. Um, okay, that that's an interesting one. Now, since you're you're a language teacher, you've learned um, languages yourself. What are some of the tips you would give people? Um, like some of the main, the main language learning tips, or the things that kind of have helped you. Now, in a previous episode with uh, César, um how social media and cancel culture influence language learning, I went over the generation effect, the hypercorrection effect, and spaced repetition and interleaving. Um, so, any listeners who want to know more about that, I recommend checking out that uh, episode because I don't want to repeat myself too much. Um, so, what are some of your most recommended learning tactics especially when it comes to language
1: i feel like some of the, you've already mentioned like space repetition in terms of learning new vocabulary and using it again like i'm not going to go too much detail as you say you've already got plenty of other content that people can learn about that but that genuinely was so so important for me with learning because chinese in particular so many words that are completely different to english um and the character writing space repetition helped a lot with learning how to handwrite all of those characters um so that's definitely one factor but i think aside from like direct language learning tips i think the most important thing is actually passionate about learning the language because motivation like most people think okay this year i'm gonna learn spanish and they'll pick up dueling or whatever and they'll do spanish for a couple of weeks and then they'll give up because they don't have a strong reason to learn spanish um and actually i found this myself in japan you thought I'd have a strong reason for learning Japanese given that I moved to Japan and I've been living here for over a year now um and I knew for like a whole year before I came that I was coming like I had the job offer a whole year before that things got delayed because of COVID and everything so I was waiting and waiting and waiting to go to Japan it would have been you thought strong motivation to learn Japanese um instead what I did was enroll in an online Chinese class and um that was like <laughs> completely put Japanese aside because I wasn't passionate about it i was just learning it for life or like for work um and also those, those aren't good reasons but maybe i'm just not very good at motivating myself whereas chinese i think because i fell in love with the culture um i started watching chinese tv shows i had chinese friends i want to be able to talk to more easily um i was using like chinese social media platforms and like following sort of fandom and culture stuff within china and to engage well with that you have to know chinese because it's not translated and that, I think, was a really strong motivation in terms of, like, hobbies and personal interests. So, what I'm not sure that's a language learning tip, but, so yeah. Much? Oh gosh, that's hard. What do I love about Chinese culture so much? It's really difficult. I feel like it was almost random TV shows or, like, people I met. Um, yeah, people I met. Like, I made genuine friends when I was in China who I'm still in contact with and... This sounds really bad. If any of my university friends in the UK are listening, I, I, I still love you guys. You're amazing. But I'm going to be honest, I haven't spoken to any of my university friends since graduating like five years ago from the UK. Whereas if I look at friends I met when I was in China, I'm still in contact regularly with most of them. Um, and maybe that's part of the kind of experience if you move somewhere new. But it's, yeah, people I've met and those relationships you build, I think is is probably one of the strongest things
0: yeah i've noticed that as well uh teaching chinese students and and having my own teaching business and working with the the chinese parents in this case they're so much more loyal than (laughs) we westerners are once you form a relationship and you'll learn about that when it comes to like cultural competence right that in in china it's very relationship based you don't get right down to business until you form a certain relationship Now, when i first started teaching english i had the opposite of experience because i was teaching through platforms like wales english and vip kid and it's just straight down to business right like it's really about do you follow these rigid rules do you come from the right university and it was so like task-based and then i thought this doesn't make any sense what i learned in cultural psychology or cultural competence workshops but then once I had my own business and I actually had to foster relationships myself, I noticed how much value they place on that. And I don't know, do you think that's one of the reasons that you stay in touch with them more? Is this because how much they value family and, and close relationships?
1: I think now you mention it, that is, I think, to a certain extent, like a, a big factor because like, there was um, one Chinese family and I was living in China that I started tutoring their younger daughter um, while I was there. And they put so much emphasis on building that relationship. Whereas when I first, like, they reached out to me saying they were interested they were looking for an English tutor for their child. And I was thinking, okay, I'll be a couple of hours a week, we'll do some tutoring and that's it. Whereas for them, it's like almost adopting me into their family. Like, as one of the tutoring sessions, they would take me on days out, they would invite me for the- always and take me for lunch afterwards um i got to know them they introduced me to the whole wider family um when i went back to china a couple of years later they took me on holiday to the other side of china like a three-hour flight away um it, it completely i celebrated chinese new year with them um gosh it was like almost for me i was like oh this is just a little easy side job you know a bit of money on the side to help me with my studies whereas for them they're like wow we can like, teach you all about chinese culture and they Literally, I refer to them sometimes as my Chinese adopted family because they literally adopted me completely into their life. Um, that's amazing. So yeah, that is incredible. Actually, that's what always what I say about the people I meet having such an impact. And it's hard to describe that as someone who hasn't had that experience because, yeah, yeah. it's maybe it's a very. Oh, yeah,
0: I, I get it. I haven't had that exact experience, but I I can totally picture it just based on my experiences as well. And. Well, I think this ties into teaching as well. I've always had this perspective, but nowadays with um, AI and chat GPT and stuff, I even have it more so. I think the principal role of a teacher is to motivate and to foster a relationship. I mean, that's why we learn languages in the first place. I always say that if your motivation is to pass the test, that's not good enough, right? Your motivation should be because you want to communicate with people. That's why language exists. It's communication. And um at first like that's always kind of my my principle when it comes to teaching but now I think it's even more important with AI because I'll be honest I'm a language teacher and I'll admit ChatGPT is better than me when it comes to explaining grammar rules like it is faster and I'll utilize it for my students if I'm stuck on a question you know, I, so, there's so much information, right? Sometimes I, I can't pull it up quick enough and ChatGPT can, so I just use ChatGPT. And I sometimes I think, well, shit, am I good? Is my job going to be obsolete? And I think probably not really because it's still about motivation. And uh, like I right now for Spanish, I use ChatGPT almost every day to practice Spanish because I find it so good. Um, but I was wondering what your opinions on this are. Do you think this is something that teachers should be focusing more and more on and realizing that AI might take over certain aspects of the job? Or do you think that a teacher's job is still to do a lot with like, no, 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 like know the grammar, make sure that you're answering it in your way and things like this?
1: This is a really, there's a big debate on this. You're probably aware at the moment, everyone's got opinions on AI, um, particularly in education. And I feel like, we should see AI as a tool that's going to help us as teachers rather than as a threat that's going to take away our jobs because like we're saying the importance is on that relationship and it's something that I don't think an AI can really replicate Um, because they haven't had the same real life experiences as much as they can kind of put on an act of being human um, and I guess as things develop even further I've seen already like AI videos with talking head things that are all entirely virtually like AI generated Um, so you can imagine a world in which there's like an online teacher who's not actually a teacher, but an AI. But the thing is, anything that teacher says doesn't have the same element of, sort of trust and um, like relatability because it's been generated by a robot. So the human the human student at the other end knows that they can't relate directly to this teacher. So for example, I often talk to my students in class um, and they'll be talking about, why, why do we need to bother learning this? Why is this important? And I'll be able to say, oh, you know, this is important because when I moved to China, or when I moved to Japan, and I was trying to do whatever, I needed to use this exact sentence structure. It was really, really useful. That time I struggled with, I don't know, my train ticket. I missed my train, and I had to change my train ticket, and therefore I had to use whatever grammatical thing. Now, yeah. an AI can't say that, honestly. An AI can make that up, but the AI hasn't had that experience. Um, yeah. So I think that our real life experiences are actually really important. Um, and that's just one example, but I think it helps you relate and have that relationship that I don't think what's essentially a robot can actually replace.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now, let's tie this into your business then, Average Academy, because you design, you design courses for teachers as well. Um, now, one thing I've been thinking about a little bit with my own material is like, Should I start shifting this a bit? Like I use a lot of Cambridge material as a guideline. And then depending on the student, I always adapt it depending on their interests, find different videos, things like this. But nowadays I'm thinking, should I start working with AI more and adapting the material so that I teach students how to use AI? For grammar because as i said um like at the beginning it wasn't as good but now it's just a few months it's already so much better and i'm noticing the progress with chat and everything so i'm thinking maybe there's a way to design lessons to help students use the ai for the grammar related questions even for certain um uh Methods for studying, you know, test questions, even for marking work. Like now I, in Spanish, I'll write a text in in Spanish, send it to JATGPT, and it'll explain all the errors to me, right? And then sorry, the students are like, okay, well, then why would I need you? It's like, well, I'm here as what you said, the emotional connections and drawing from actual human experiences that you connect with. And online, you're still seeing each other, right? I think such an important part of language is the eyes, the mouth, every little expression you make, because those are all cues that help you remember um, vocabulary and grammar in some cases. Uh, But that's kind of like my long-winded explanation. But I was wondering, are you thinking about this at all with your material right now with um, uh, the Academy, Average Academy?
1: That's actually a really good point. So with Average Academy, we offer like pre-made curriculum like teaching materials that teachers can use, particularly focusing on online teachers, although we also have... Of classroom teachers who are also using these materials um so it's things like interactive slides that you can click and drag and drop and it's all engaging it's much more engaging than you'd have with like a passive uh, powerpoint slide is the concept um and we have some great feedback on that and i haven't actually personally used ai in the development of those materials um, mostly because we have been working on this for a couple of years and ai has only really been a thing well, it's always been a thing but it's only really massively taken off in the teaching community in the last couple of months um, but I have used AI myself with some of my own students like quickly in class when right? we need a bit of help on something or um, sometimes I've been trying to make like a quick resource to use with my students that's going to like practice a grammar point. So, for example, um, maybe we, I need, you know, a list of 10 sentences in the past continuous tense or whatever with a gap for an exercise or something like that. And you can very quickly type that into ChatGPT and within 10 seconds it's given you <laughs> basically the whole worksheet. Um, yeah. And that can be so, so helpful. Like, just there in any class where you can't think of these ideas because it takes time to plan for <laughs> these kind of sentences. Um, I think it's certainly very useful. Have I used it much myself yet? Not as much as I think some other teachers have. Um, I'm excited for the potential of it. I'm not sure that's really the answer. It's just like I'm excited for the opportunities. No, no, no. Um, I would like to see things that can adapt. What I would really love, and this requires more tech skills than I have, but what I would really love is if we could make resources that somehow adapted to students as they go along. Like, you're teaching in class and the student makes some mistakes in answering some quiz, and then it would give you a follow-up quiz or give you follow-up like materials or lessons that pick out what they struggled with. That's something I think could be really cool and could use AI in a way that makes teaching.
0: Yeah, and I think about that too, because sometimes as a teacher, when you're just alone, it's difficult. Let's say you're, you're taking... With adults, it's easy because adults can take their own notes, right? But with kids, yes. oftentimes, you want to take notes for them, and then you're listening while taking notes. If the AI had like a little, uh, I don't know, a little trigger where you say, oh, this vocabulary, then it quickly writes it down for you and then you can create the the feedback after. That'd be awesome. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, with, with your material, um, I've, I've checked out some things and it's like very engaging also, especially for children, right? It's very important. Like it's colorful, it's fun, um, which is incredibly important when teaching children. Um. Another thing I was wondering with that is how do you notice that you've had to adapt your motivation styles depending on culture to culture? Because it varies greatly, even with with adults. Um, you're just, just used to thinking, you know, thinking about some things. It's like people from a theory-first culture versus um, an, uh, like an application-first culture. right? Like in the United States, people are very application-first. When you do a presentation, it's about the outcome. And then people might ask about the theory. But in Germany, it's very different. It's like, no, it's about the tell me the theory and then I'll accept the application side of things. Um, and in China, there, I don't know actually too much too much uh, research around it. I've noticed that they're curious about both. And I, what what is it from your experience? Do you feel like with students, they, they you really need to present the theory first in China or in Japan? or does any of the other um, cultures you've taught?
1: That's quite an interesting one. It was something I haven't really necessarily thought about. I feel like I adapt my teaching a lot depending on the student I'm talking to. And every student, even within a single culture, does have their own personal personality, right? Um, so I think that's definitely a factor. What I find interesting here in Japan, so in Japan, I teach in pub- the public school system. So they follow like set textbooks, set curriculum, like a set way of doing things. And they tend to introduce the theory Um, like say it's a grammar point let's pick that as an example they'll have a grammar lesson and they'll learn the grammar point then they'll practice the grammar point then they'll move on in the next lesson maybe to reading a thing that uses that grammar point and then using it in their own sentences like it's very methodical in a way Um, that might just be the curriculum that we're using here in public schools but it seems to be the approach that first teach the theory then apply it um it's interesting though because a lot of the students i've taught in china have had always the opposite approach and again this might partly be due to platforms i've taught with or like when i was in china i also went back and taught on various short-term programs in china as well but they were very focused on like a project or like a big achievement they're working towards and as you go maybe there's some grammar points you need to learn along the way but the goal is to get to some end point um is that a cultural thing or is that specific to the exact kind of programs of students and their goals i don't know it's interesting okay, one to I think, think that's about.
0: Kind of difficult to, to decipher there. But what about from your view? Um, do you think that one or the other method is better, or do you think you have to adapt it depending on the learning style?
1: I think always as teachers we have to adapt around our students. That's one thing always to be aware. There's no one perfect way of teaching. Otherwise we'd have robots teaching <laughs> teaching for us because we'd program them to do it perfectly. Um, but. I, Personally, as much as I don't like some aspects of the way it's taught here in Japan, just the way it's implemented, maybe me personally does better with the uh, teach the theory first and apply it kind of approach. Um, maybe that's just my own personal language learning influence on this. Um, but I do often find that once they have a, students have a stronger understanding and sort of mastery of the core concepts, it's easier to actually apply it. Um, okay. But maybe that's a bit of a traditionalist view that just works with my own personal learning style. Um uh, yeah, because not everyone talking about a little bit, right? But yeah.
0: It, it depends. Yeah. It's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. I'm always playing playing with, with my own language learning and with other students as well. Now another one that's interesting when it comes to different cultures is feedback. Right? There's a big difference in how blunt and negative you can be. And if we look at the scales, um, like Israel and Holland, they're some of the most blunt when it comes to negative feedback. Um uh, the u k less the u k is less blunt than in the united than the United States, right? you kind of circle around things sometimes. um and then apparently a lot of like Asian cultures, it's not very blunt when it's in a business setting. but I have a very different experience when it comes to children in the educational setting. Like I find if you tell a Canadian student that they did something wrong, They're just unmotivated, even if you do it with critical feedback, right? You make the shit sandwich, (laughs) right? They're more likely to be like, oh, it hurts my self-esteem. And like, they don't want to persist. And they've done studies with that as well um, with adults. And then when it comes to kids in China, if I tell them they did something wrong, they're so motivated to do better. Um, so it kinda like contradicts a little bit of that blood negative feedback, uh, research. So I'm just wondering what your experience is with this in China and in Japan. Uh,
1: yeah. This is a very interesting one because I've heard almost the same experience. Like, everyone says that like don't criticize people in China, don't criticize kids in Japan because it's like not the done thing. But I mean, as long as you present it in a in a polite way. Um they tend to actually take on board that feedback a lot more than when I was teaching in the UK. Kids in the UK, you tell them something's wrong, they're like, "Well, whatever, I don't care." That's <laughs> like, that's not helpful. You know, the point of the, or the feedback is to the help them make progress, right? You've got to tell them where they went wrong and how to improve on it in order that they can improve on it. Um, and maybe that's a culture thing to do with respect within the education system more than it is the feedback style specifically. Um, but I find. It's interesting because when I came to Japan, we had specific training from the British Council when we arrived. Um, And one of the things they specifically told us was, do not criticize kids directly because it will demotivate them. They'll be really embarrassed in front of their whole class. Like, don't do that. Um, So I haven't tried that because I've been like, well, I've been told don't criticize kids in front of the whole class. But I will do like gentle corrections. And obviously when people submit work, I will write feedback on the work. And if they made a mistake, I will write, don't circle it in Japan because you circle it, that means it was right. You're meant to underline it. I learned that the wrong way. <laughs> the bad way when I first got here, circled everything that was wrong and the kids like, yeah, I got it all right. I'm like, nope. Um <laughs> But like if you give them pointers on where to improve, they're very on board with taking on board that feedback. And I think oh, maybe they appreciate the honesty, but I feel like it's almost a cultural a cultural way in which they approach taking on board feedback and how they respect educators. Whereas yeah, when it comes yeah, to workplace, the you've got to to a different Okay. Yeah, respect you. whereas in the UK kids will answer back. Like, they won't blink twice before they answer back. No, I didn't get that wrong. That's correct. What do you mean? It's, yeah. That's yeah, You're the one in the wrong. Um, yeah. You don't get that in China or Japan.
0: Now, something you mentioned is the embarrassability, and I think that's an important factor. Like, if you look at, this, especially the studies between Japan and Canada, Japanese people score a lot higher on embarrassability, and I think that's maybe... The difference when it comes to negative feedback, a lot of time when I'm teaching online or a lot of teachers who teach online, you're, you have two students in the classroom. They, they often know each other or just one. If you're giving one person direct negative feedback, there, there's no way that they can get embarrassed because it's just it's just the two of you. And I think in that setting, they're way more accepting of it. But then in a classroom setting, maybe that's where it comes from because they have such more more of a culture of saving face in front of people. Yes. And that's where you, why you can't do the direct negative feedback. So I think there's a big difference if it's one-on-one or in a group setting.
1: Yeah. I think also, like, something I would do in the UK, if a kid answers a question incorrectly, like, in front of the whole class, right? I've asked them in front of the whole class to say an answer to a question, they got it wrong, I might then turn to another kid and say, mm, Ben didn't quite get it right, what do you think is the right answer? Or how, how would you add to that? Or how could you correct this? Um, whereas, I feel like in Japan, they're more likely just to be like... And sort of be a bit quieter about responding to that feedback in front of the whole class. So rather than bouncing it on to the next student to improve on, it would be more like I might correct that student directly myself. Um, in in a more gentle way, like they said the sentence slightly wrong, or be like, well, we just learned on the board that, you know, in past tense we normally add E D on the end of the verb. How could you change that to add, you know, to work on that? And they're like, oh yes, I need E D on the end and then quickly say the sentence again. Um, yeah. But more often I don't give feedback in front of the whole class like I'm more likely to do written feedback with my Japanese students than I did in the UK. So yeah, yeah it's kind of what you're saying about the embarrassability aspect um, and not being called out in front of their classmates.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, since we've been talking about all this culture, but just to move it a little bit away from the children and the students, I'm curious a little bit more about your experience in Japan. For uh, well, one thing I recently learned about, and I love it, is nomikai. Um the drinking to build trust pretty much. Have you experienced this with your colleagues? In other words, have you gotten drunk with your colleagues yet?
1: <laughs> so I don't drink, so no, I haven't. <laughs> and actually to be honest, I think in the school system, drinking is much less of a of a thing within school culture. Quite a lot of teachers got their own kids and stuff at home. So like they got their own life outside <laughs> of school to be to be like hanging around after work, uh, drinking. But yeah. it's definitely a thing here. So I live right above a bar. Um i did not choose this accommodation i would point out i was provided with this accommodation by the school (laughs) they did not choose to live above a bar um and so i live almost directly above the very loud there's a lot of noise um and i see a lot of like business types coming in suits you know after work kind of going to have a drink i think there was a lot of drinking within the work culture we see that in the uk too though um like in the we're more likely to see that in UK schools I think than Japanese schools like we would go to the pub after work that wouldn't be a a weird thing but not to get completely drunk Um, you know everyone might have a beer or two but that's it maybe we're just a bit reserved in my bit of the UK (laughs) whereas I feel like in Japan those same Japanese business people who I'd see arriving at sort of like 9 in the evening would leave at 2 in the morning completely smashed making loads of noise and then getting more alcohol from the convenience store opposite to continue drinking on the streets which is not quite what I would imagine doing with my superiors if i had a kind of businessy job
0: yeah definitely so y- you haven't had to go out with your superiors yet from the school the, the director or anything like that
1: no everyone's very like school is within school and everyone leaves um so yeah maybe it's just me who leaves <laughs> i don't know maybe i'm just bunking off but yeah um there's not so much of a, a drink culture within our school certainly um okay. i feel it's probably like a lot of the other teachers are quite older and like with kids and family and stuff at home so I guess they have responsibilities
0: yeah yeah I just think it's so interesting because of course I've experienced that when you get drunk with someone you know you kind of have this little bond after unless you got in an argument but uh it's like oh you kind of you were willing to open up all right um and then when it comes to Japan i just find it so interesting cuz there's such a hierarchy right so that all of a sudden if someone who's above you in a position invites you to go out and just get plastered even me someone that comes with like a more of like an egalitarian mindset and everything i'd be a little bit uncomfortable with getting getting drunk with my boss and even here in spain which scores a little bit higher on the hierarchy side of things than in canada um which i don't, I don't really understand how but when people go out like i I go to a bar and you'll see the 18 year olds and 19 year olds like the people just starting university at the table next to all the professors and they're all just drinking and it's just so much more equal here um but here that's because it's that's just kind of how the society is and then in japan it's more like a strange juxtaposition between getting wasted and then the the office culture
1: I find that bizarre as well because Japan office culture in Japan and even in the school like schools in Japan as well are very formal. Like everyone's wearing suits. Some schools teachers are a bit more casual, particularly like elementary schools, but like middle school, high school teachers are wearing suits. Um, everyone in the offices are very formal. Like you see people walk into the train station in the morning in like full suits. No one's no one's wearing their jeans and, you know casual stuff to work. And you know everyone everyone's always bowing in work. It's like thank you so much. Even when you say good morning, like every time you walk into a Oh, this is a Every if someone walk into work and there's a bow every 10 seconds every person who walks past be like oh hi I'm ass oh hi i ass like oh my gosh you see my ponytail flicking all over my face right now it's driving <laughs> to be mad in the mornings Um, like everyone's so formal and polite and reserved in the office it surprises me that there's this culture of sort of junking and that maybe that's why it's sort of needed
0: in a way yeah I was going to say if you're not reserved yeah. you have to have that one day a week where you just let loose I guess Um, oh another one uh, Japanese baseball. Have you watched it? <laughs> I've, I've read about it. No, i can't see it. I was just no. Okay, no. I'll, I'll just I'll just read about this here quickly. Um, I guess we can't get into a conversation about it. Maybe in the future, and maybe this will entice you to watch it. Um, but in J- Ch- Chinese baseball, again, it's more. Or, sorry, Japanese baseball. It's more collectivistic. Like, um, it involves sacrifice bunts, and the team will prov- uh the team worked to prevent members of other team losing losing face. Uh, so such as like three-pitch three, three pitch strikeouts um, or extremely lopsided victories. They'll make sure that that doesn't happen. And there was someone from Toronto that trained in Japan. And he said it made, that made the boot camps in Canada look like a church social compared to in Japan because they all do everything in the winter. And it's just like way more intense. But then again, yeah, it's really... Uh, They make sure that it's more equal and everything too. So I thought it was kind of interesting how the collectivistic side even plays a role in something like sports that actually has the same rules.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. I have to admit, I don't even know how baseball works, so yeah.
0: Okay. I don't don't know too much about it either, actually. I'm not a big sports guy. Um, Well, I love extreme sports, but not a big team sports guy. Uh, Well, since you haven't seen the baseball there, any other activities that have really stood out to you that you just didn't do uh, back in the UK or didn't do in China that you now do in Japan?
1: Gosh, I feel like I'm a kind of reclusive person who hides in my room and reads books. So not so much in terms of activities. I find some interesting some aspects of school culture that are quite different though. Um, And I think in some ways that links into sort of broader Japanese culture. Like here we have kids cleaning classrooms, for example, which is completely unheard of back in the UK. Um, So there's, there's so many things that are so different. It's always difficult to pick out specifics, but
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, that, another thing I wanted to get into today was about how we've, we've talked a little bit about it at the beginning, about how language influences the way you think and everything. Um, are you familiar with the Warfian hypothesis or the linguistic relativity hypothesis?
1: I don't no. believe so. I may have heard the concepts. So I've yeah. not heard them Well, let's quickly before.
0: read it. out. I would explain it myself, but I want to make sure that it's, it's spot on. Sorry, I'll just read something here. So the, the strongest version of this hypothesis is that language influences how we think. That is, we are unable to do much thinking on the topic if we don't have the relevant words available to us. Uh, so this part of the hypothesis has pretty much been universally rejected. Because, um, for example, pre-linguistic infants and toddlers show evidence for quite complex thinking in the absence of language. Uh, they can notice breaks and patterns, put colors and shapes in groups, figure out when someone needs help, things like this. But then the other version um, is that language just affects how we think. So this version is constantly debated. Um and I was wondering what, what you think of it, just from, from your experience, have you thought about color differently or smell differently or time? Because, uh, color, smell and time are three things that have been proven in the research where language influences how you think, right? For instance, pink, that's an easy one. Pink is actually a shade of red, but because we have a word for it, we put it into a different category. And they've also done a, a study with the Bernimo speakers. Uh, they're from north, Northeast Papua New Guinea and English speakers. And they had all these chips that were different hues of blues and greens. And when asked what was more green and what was more blue compared to the target chip, English speakers had different answers than the Bernese speakers. So it just shows that like language influences the way you see color. Um, then with smell the Jahai speakers in the northern peninsular Malaysia um and, and in the south and they're in the also from the southernmost part of Thailand, um, had the most consensus among each when describing smells that American English speakers uh, couldn't agree at all. They just like they couldn't agree how to describe the smells. And then of course there's like time, right? If if you're uh, an English speaker, you think about time passing from left to right, then Australian ab- Aborig- uh, aboriginals uh, um, or indigenous people, actually better to say, uh, they see it from tra- traveling east to west and little things like that. Um, but I'm just wondering from your experience now, have have you started describing anything differently or thinking about any sensations differently because of different languages?
1: That's really interesting. I'd always say my personality is a bit different in different languages. Does that mean I'm seeing things a different way? It's hard. And um, you mentioned our like colors, for example. I know there are words, like you say, English, we have a special word for pink. Um, whereas in Chinese, the word for pink is just light red, um, or like yeah. partially red. Um, yeah. But they still have the concept of pink. But maybe the the line where they draw the distinction between pink and red, I don't know, maybe that's different. Um, that's quite interesting. And it's the same in Japanese, actually. They have different words for, like, blue, green, to some extent. Or, like, there's blue and light blue. And, like, to me, they're all blue. But to Japanese people, there's, there's sort of a different concept. Like, this color was blue, this color was light blue.
0: That's really things. interesting. Um, yeah, that's, an, that's a good example. Rich.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, my Japanese is very rubbish, so I haven't got the point in my own Japanese learning to be anywhere near to have that same concept myself um but i definitely like students will ask me what's this color i'm like that's blue and they'll ask me what's this color I'm like that's blue as well like <laughs> why are you asking me the same question twice um so i think that there's some differences there but yeah in terms of how i perceive things it's more i think the language i'm speaking some the influences the personality i have and i think that's partly if i look at chinese for example when i was learning chinese i think i was forcing myself to be a bit more outgoing as a person because me speaking english i'm actually Personally, I think I'm quite a reserved kind of person. Anyone when knew me growing up, I was like a shy kid who read books and hid in library rather than going to make friends, you know? Um, whereas I think me speaking Chinese is often a lot more outgoing. I'm more willing to approach strangers and like spark up a conversation. And that's maybe because I forced myself to do that, like as a Chinese learner, because like, the only way I'm going to improve on this language is if I use the language. So I have to make friends and, you know, I'd sit on a train and people would like say hi and I would say hi what's your name? Where are you from? And I was forced myself to start up a conversation because I needed to practice. Um, and that made me more that's outgoing.
0: Interesting, because I would assume you'd think the opposite, right? Um,
1: yeah. Cool. Yeah, you're going to be more shy speaking another language because I'd be nervous and making mistakes. Maybe that's why I'm so terrible at Japanese. But um, it's, yeah, I'm definitely more outgoing in Chinese than I am in English. That, that and really I would say really things more confidently.
0: And say, oh, my English personality is more reserved and my Japanese personality (laughs) is like, doesn't get embarrassed, like the opposite of everything you hear.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But it's interesting because I would say things in Chinese I almost wouldn't have the guts to say in English. Like if we have a debate or something, I can think back to like Chinese classes would have like debates on controversial topics. Um, and I would say something like maybe in English, I might be a little bit nervous to bring up in class just because I'm that super shy person. I think as I've grown older, I've grown a bit out of the, the shy personality, but certainly I might phrase things differently in English. But when I'm saying in Chinese, I'd be like very confident in my opinion because you know this is a debate class and we're going to say our opinions and it's Chinese so I can say whatever I want because I'm learning a new language. Um, yeah. So it's always made me more outgoing and more confident in my opinions in some ways.
0: But yeah. yeah interesting. Uh, well, yeah, you brought, brought up the debate, and um, with the Whorfian hypothesis, this uh, language relativist hypothesis, it keeps getting brought up nowadays with woke culture and things like that because, you know, a lot of the things in, like, the PC discourse, they say, we have to change this word because um, the historical context, and if you keep using this word, you're, like, microaggressions, all that, right? And then you have that side of the debate, and then you have the others saying, like, The language isn't going to change the way that people think. Those people are always going to be there depending on whether or not you enforce these language laws or language rules. And I'm always interested in getting the opinion here from other language teachers. Um, People who have listened to the show know my own opinion here. Uh, But I was wondering what, what you think about this. Do you think that controlling language will help to protect certain marginalized groups? Um, will shift kind of the the consciousness of the general public, or do you think that there are other approaches and to to do this, or better approaches before changing language? Like, do you think maybe, uh, I guess, in other ways, you think language change has to happen first, or do you think there actually has to be a conscious shift first, and then the language change will follow?
1: I feel like. The latter is what tends to happen. There's a cultural shift first, and the language changes in response to that cultural shift. Um, An example of that might be things like gendered pronouns, right? So in English, we have he and she as the sort of traditional singular pronouns. Um, And then they we use if we don't know the gender of the person we're referring to traditionally, and look back historically. Although actually, there's a lot of research into the stories, so maybe it's not quite the same. But um, the way we teach it in school, traditionally, like to English, as a, as English as a foreign language, these are your pronouns. He and she are the third-person singular pronouns. Um, whereas, of course, now we're much more accepting as they, as, or various other pronouns as sort of gender-neutral singular pronouns. Um, that's, and I think it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of debate then in language teaching. Do we introduce those like to beginners in a language? Particularly if they're from a culture that maybe hasn't had the same cultural shift. Um, as we might have done in, say, the UK and the US, um, yeah. which I think brings up a lot of debate. I'm not sure there's an easy answer to this, um, but it's something... No, definitely not. I think it's, it, <laughs> it brings up a lot of debate. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the big question. That's what I, really um, like. and I think, in a way... Feel free to so, say
0: yeah. whatever you want on this show, right? And if you have a different theory after, just comment. be like, you know by the way, I said this, but I actually think this now, so...
1: <laughs> I will correct this from the pc people but i think um yeah <laughs> i think that like for me personally my english i would use they as a singular pronoun because it's it's become common usage um particularly within sort of my generation within the uk and and many other english-speaking countries um but it's interesting that for example in japan um because we're learning english as a foreign language that we're teaching english as a foreign language um teachers would correct like miss would correct that as being incorrect. If they, put, if they use they as a singular pronoun in test, for example, that would be incorrect because that's just how we teach English. And it's very difficult to change that culture. And also, like, how do you broach that cultural difference um, in some ways when it's not always the same? I noticed that particularly at Japan, and when I was teaching Chinese students as well, um, like within China, there's very much not the same sort of cultural shift. Although it's interesting because Chinese is a language, um the words for he and she are pronounced the same. They're written differently. The characters are different. Um, but you say ta for he and she, like it's the same pronunciation. Um, and actually you'll often see when it's written down. Um, if you're if writing a block of text and they don't want to like refer to the, the gender of the person they're speaking about, they'll write ta in like um, Latin alphabet, like in English letters TA to avoid having to put in the actual Chinese character that would indicate the gender of the person they're speaking about. Um You'll see a lot particularly when they transcribe videos and things and they don't know the gender of the person they're speaking about because what do you put in? Um, Very
0: interesting. Well, it's quite interesting. I'm going to use that as an, as an example against kind of some of the PC discourse there saying like, oh, you have to change language because it's like, okay, well, look at how the the equality issues in China sometimes towards women and like the difference between men and women or or how they treat uh, people from the LGBTQT society and everything. Well, look, they have one word for everything gender, right? So, t- does it really have that much of an effect? Do we really need to enforce all these rules? I don't know. That, that's a really interesting example. I didn't know that. It was similar. Yeah. Like here in-
1: I think it's interesting because it also shows how language can sort of adapt, but without completely changing. Um, like the written language, adapting to kind of match the spoken language, if that makes sense. Because the written language is gendered, whereas people are more often writing TA in English letters to avoid that. But yeah, it's it's interesting.
0: There's so many little examples like that. Like Here here in Spain, um, of course, things are gendered as well, right? Um, And then now they have something where you can have uh, a non-gendered or all-inclusive gendered word, right? Instead of an O or an A, you put an E at the end. Um, Also now, like if there's a room and there are more women in the room, what might be more likely to use the "a" instead of the the old the old way to use "o" and everything? I don't have big opinions on that side of it, um, but then sometimes I also think like, why do you think the language is so much more on the side of the patriarchy? Because there are other examples like uh, I don't know. It's more of a, just a funny one that I always help for me to help remember, but um, like la solución, um, the solution feminine right so the solution are women <laughs> and then el problema men what's the problem men I love that to help me remember I love it too <laughs> and I think there's some truth to it and um, it helps me remember it but then it's like hey look your language is not <laughs> supporting the patriarchy there right it's a stupid little silly example but um sometimes yeah. I think on the other side the examples can be a little bit silly as well.
1: I think also there's a certain amount of sort of reclaiming of gendered language that is going on. Like if you look at Japan, for example, they also have gender pronouns for um, first person. You can, they're like optional. So you can say watashi, which means I, and that's sort of gender neutral. Or you could say boku, which is very much a male and like a more, seen as kind of like a more dominant kind of word for I. Like a manager, if he wants to really emphasize that he's the boss, right? He might use boku to describe like I am blah, blah, blah. Um,
0: but you can use that for a female manager as well?
1: Well, that's the thing, like, traditionally, no. Traditionally, that's very much a male pronoun, whereas Watashi is, like, gender neutral and it's, like, less strong. where um, there's no female equivalent. Um, but it's interesting to see that in some places there's a bit of a cultural shift, particularly in the online kind of community. People will be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm a Boku woman. Like, they're kind of trying to claim, like, oh, no, like, I'm the dominant one. I'm the boss here um which is something that you see that's kind of interesting and it's maybe it's in small communities it's not necessarily a large one scale sort of societal thing but it's interesting that people are yeah. kind of not rebelling against the language but like changing how they're using that language and kind of the way they perceive themselves within their language um because of this sort of shifting culture which is yeah unusual
0: okay oh i'm i'm really interested in that to see the effects that that kind of language change will have because in Japan, I mean, there's, it's clearly um, much less egalitarian when it comes to men and women than in many Western countries. Um, I mean, in Western countries, I think we still have a, a long way to go as well, but it's a little bit more debatable in some issues, right? But whereas in Japan, it's like, it's clear that um, uh, women have it much harder that, than men and the way that the, the society is structured. Um, But Katie, we're coming up on an hour here and just to finish up, we already talked a little bit about um, Abridge Academy, but is there anything else you want to add here just uh, for any teachers that might be listening to the show and are interested in using the material or any ways that maybe they want to collaborate with you?
1: Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, So as I kind of mentioned a bit earlier, um, Abridge Academy is um, a UK based company. We sell teaching materials mostly teaching materials like for online teachers particularly interactive slides make it really engaging and fun for students um i think a lot of things we talked about in terms of culture and language use here has also influenced the way the materials have been built because um, they're designed very much for using it with um foreign students particularly chinese students we have a lot of teachers who are teaching chinese students um using the materials um there's a free trial available so anyone wants to check it out just go to averageacademy.com um or just google average academy curriculum it comes up and yeah we have like a free tier of Version available where you can access a whole bunch of materials for free to try it out um, we also do coaching and stuff for online teachers so if you're looking to grow your online teaching business or just get started teaching online then um, there are courses available we have a free boot camp coming up um, on sort of teaching online and how to market and promote yourself internationally particularly focusing on the Chinese market in terms of the marketing side so things like social media platforms a different culture when it comes to marketing in China and how you present yourself um, from a sort of business and cultural perspective Things like that so yeah if anyone's interested in any of that just go to abridge or google abridge academy and um would love for you to, to check it out
0: all right katie thank you so much for coming on the show and listeners i'll put links to abridge academy and all of that in the description so you just have to click and it'll all be there and again uh, listeners please support the show by sharing this and checking out bornwithoutborders.substack.com and check out a bunch of articles there about cultural competence, funny stories, and some language learning tips. And there's a new episode every Tuesday.